I want to tell you that my brand new course for entrepreneurs and aspiring is coming so soon. The doors open and close this month in June. If you have ever felt like you overcomplicate launching a business or product, can admit that you could probably make more income for yourself and your family if you could just make things happen more easily and quickly, that is exactly what I'm here to help you do. I care about helping businesses make money, decisions, and growth more quickly. So I took my experience from having had over 850,000 entrepreneurs come through my free trainings over the last nine years, listened to your most common challenges and complaints, and created a program to support you. Swipe up to get on the list so you can hear first and do not miss your chance. And whether you want to increase your business by 50%, 10%, or 1% growth, that is what I am all about, including today's topic. So let's get into the show. You're welcome. What was that? You're welcome. With Hillary Rushford. Say it again. You're welcome. In advance. Hello, love from Brooklyn, New York. That is right. We are finally home sweet home. I am podcasting again from my beautiful little home office. We left our little humble abode for four weeks and ended up gone for 15. If you did not catch our story at the moment, my husband and I were headed down to Mexico for a month. I was starting to write my first style book, and then everything with coronavirus broke out. We ended up going to Phoenix randomly, where we knew no one, but it was a nonstop flight from Cancun and warm because that was the only clothes that we had. We ended up staying there for 10 weeks and then went to California and Las Vegas to see both of our families before flying home to New York. I will share a little more in the PS about what it has been like back in New York. But it is really amazing to sit here and consider what I was sharing, what we were talking about when I left, how much we have all been through in less than 15 weeks. Because when I left, coronavirus was not really even on our radars. It was like, 10 days later that we really kind of all woke up to it for the most part here in the U.S. at least. In less than 15 weeks, we've been through this entire pandemic and quarantine, things that most of us have never lived through in our lifetime. And now just in the last few weeks, we have so much happening with race relations. It's just been so much. And I want to share today just some of the humble insights that I've observed for myself in this community over just the last two and a half or three weeks, which feels like two months when it comes to everything that's been happening with race relations. But really, it was just about three weeks ago, I posted a photo in response to the the, uh, murder of George Floyd. And basically, it was kind of, my caption was just something to the effect of, what else do we say? Like, I, I, I want to say something, and yet, what else do we say? It feels it's all been said before, and how are we here again? And it reminded me of a message I shared when there was a mass shooting. I think it was the one in Las Vegas that I remember posting something similar of just, what what do we do? What else do we do? I was with my business partners at the time, and one of them um, had one of their best friends. No one had heard from her that morning, and they didn't know if she was okay. And and we just felt so rocked by it. And I had that similar feeling of like, don't we just keep saying the same things again and again? So in response to that, I got a couple of people who commented. I said like, if you have suggestions of what of what to do, let me know. And a couple of people suggested read books. And I'll be honest, I felt confused about that response. I was like, how does reading books help? Like, I am not going to do these things. The shooting of Amart Aubrey and the woman in Central Park and the death of George Floyd. Like, I I am not going to do these things. So how does me reading books, like I said, it almost felt elitist. Like, I'm just pretending that this helps. Oh, I'm just going to stay in my safe house with my non-racist ideas and just read books. And that's going to make me feel like I'm doing something. And I was like, this this answer just doesn't make sense to me. And it's so interesting that, that I, I am so grateful whenever I have these moments, an Instagram, a podcast episode, and then I can reflect back and think, wow, how different things were in such a short period of time. Because over the days that followed, what I began to ponder is that there is a difference between 
racism and racial inequality. Now, please know, as I say this and as I say anything in this episode, that I am very humbly and acutely aware I am not an expert. I am not black. I am not a per- person of color. I am not saying that this is something I have a PhD dissertation in or that I have spent years studying. I am trying to put in imperfect layman's terms what I have observed and what I have seen. So if this does not resonate with you or you um, you know, can correct me in some way, I just ask for your grace in knowing what I am trying to do is say, I am so far from an expert and from that place, here is what I've been observing. So we tend often to use the word racism. And when we do use that word, it feels far away from you. You, you the listener, you, the predominantly predominant woman that I see in my community, you wouldn't be that cop. You wouldn't be that person chasing down Ahmaud Arbor. You wouldn't be that person in Central Park. So you see these acts and you think that is a blatantly racist act. And I would not do that. And racism also makes you feel defensive because it, we are all agreed that those are, I want to say bad people, but I, I, I don't even want to like judge someone. But, you know, the, those are wrong things. Those are, those are bad people let's say, and and you are not one. You know in your heart and your core, you are not a bad person. You, you would not do those large-scale, grand, racist things. And therefore, there's an immediate defensiveness of, wait, wait, I don't want to be lumped in anywhere near these atrocities that I'm seeing. But when we talk about racial inequality and we bring that into it, we can say it's not a am I or am I not a part of this thing? It's it, it becomes less a label about you. Are you racist or not? It becomes this thing a little bit outside of you that allows us to have a little bit more space to say, can I see that there is racial inequality? And can I acknowledge that I have more to learn on it? Can I say, oh yeah, I'm not an expert on that? No, that hasn't been my lived experience. No, I did not write my PhD dissertation on that. No, that has not been one of the predominant topics of my life. And that allows us for a lot more grace and humility to say, oh, I'm sure I have more to learn on that. Yeah, yeah, I would love to listen on that. And so within that, one of the books that I've been reading is uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and uh, which I highly recommend. And he explains in there that really you are either for or against racism. That you really can't be neutral. You are either racist or you are anti-racist. And many of our controversial things that we can think about, you're either for or against. Guns, abortions, gay right. You lean one way or the other, even if they aren't the main thing that you are passionate about in the world. They aren't your prime issue. Just by saying, yeah, I don't know. I don't get that you know, riled up about it one way or the other implicit in there is a, and since this is the predominant narrative, this is pretty much how I feel about it. And I've just decided not to, you know, go so against it. So from what I understand, his point and others is saying that being an anti-racist is saying, I see that racial inequality and I both want to get more educated. I want to learn even more. I have the humility to to, to know I don't know it all and I have the curiosity to say I, I want to hear more about it and I want to make sure any actions that I take are on the right side of it. I understand that you can't just be neutral in this, that anything I'm doing is either for or against and I want to make sure that I am against this inequality, that I am for this equality. So I asked on Instagram stories how you're doing over these last couple of weeks with everything that's been happening with race relations and I was really blown away. The response that stood out to me the most often that really caught my eye was how many of you feel this guilt and horror and shock at how little you knew. And I can appreciate that in the Black community and for many people of color, there's a sense of, are you kidding me that you're just figuring this out? Um, But the reality is, yes, many people are just figuring this out. And as I have been listening further to people talking about their education, I actually was home. I was, anyone else, every time you go home, your mom wants you to clean out the garage. (laughs) Like there's always boxes of my stuff there. 
it's probably more heightened for me because we don't have a house. We live across the country. Like, so all of my high school stuff and college stuff is still at my parents' house. So I'm going through this binder with all of my high school accomplishments. And I noted all the certificates from having passed AP U.S. History. And I just thought with everything I've been learning these past few weeks, I had joked on Instagram about the fact that I I don't feel that I learned this in school, and yet I spent an entire semester working on a report about musical theater. We had to do this like huge report on something our senior year, and I picked musical theater. So I was like, I can tell you a lot <laughs> about tap dancing in Oklahoma and rent and things that matter a whole lot less <laughs> in the scope of the world and what's happening in everyone's lives today than if I had been studying this instead. And I just looked at that as such this example of like, yeah, I'm I'm learning stuff in these past few weeks that I don't ever recall being talked about in school. And yet here I have this this piece of paper that says I didn't even have to take history after the 11th grade because I tested out of it. They were like, you, you, Hillary Rushford, know all you need to know. And I'm like, you know what, guys, I really don't think I did. So let's talk about that. But really what's been coming up in so many conversations, whether it's adults reflecting on their education or I'm hearing parents of young children like seven, nine, 11 years old being aware of the narrative that's taught to their children, which is this idea that that slavery ended and then Martin Luther King did some walks and Rosa Parks sat on a bus and people stopped being racist after that. And there are these the, these check marks, this this sad, horrible, hard thing happened. And then it was done. And we moved on to the next chapter. And then a sad, horrible thing happened. And then it was done. And we moved on. And so what what I think a lot of us are discovering is that as adults, we need to give ourselves this education. And I'm aware of this in other ways. Jeremy teases me relentlessly because of the things he blows my mind with about space or like how the earth travels around the sun or the sun travels around the earth. I don't know, guys. Again, I think I tested out of AP science in like 11th grade and then I never had to take it again. And then I was a theater and English major. So these things just didn't stick in my head. They didn't seem real relevant to my life at the time. And I'm sure I had to take them on a test and I studied for the test and then I forgot them. So I'm aware in these ways of like, oh, yeah, I don't really know a whole lot about science or like um, geography. I'm horrible at geography. I know these things. They come up when like Jeremy and I are playing a game on the plane about geography. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm so bad at this. Um, And yet this is a new area of okay, geography doesn't really matter that much. This The whole space thing doesn't really matter that much. But this stuff, it seems to really matter. It's life and death. It's humanity. It's happening to the people around me. This feels like a, oh, we all should know this. Like if I believe in humanity, human rights, that everyone should have enough food, a job, education, healthcare, not be killed on an ordinary walk on an average Tuesday while doing nothing in their own neighborhood, in their own backyard, in their own home. I've just been pondering, is race a part of every issue, no matter which one you're most passionate about? Because we talked back in episode 17, uh, I believe it was, I'll link it below. I did an episode on, are we doing self-love right? And what I really talked about in that is that we all have different things that we're passionate about. And I believe that that is by design, that if everybody just cared about the elephants and nobody's caring about the seals, then we're all focused on one area of, of life. And I think God gave us different passions for a reason. And we have different things that we put our our donations and our our volunteer time and our activism and whatever you know our interests behind but i'm starting to ponder is racial inequality the foundation of so much that we care about not just at home for those of us that are in the united states but really globally and i've heard from some followers who are like live in Russia or Germany or France who are like, we don't struggle with this. I don't know what's happening with you guys in the United States. And I'll be honest, I don't really think that that's true as I look at the globe as a whole. I saw an article over the weekend about uh, how coronavirus is deeply impacting the education of girls in Africa. And it was looking at data from when the Ebola virus outbreak occurred and how many girls, um, you know, families lost 
lost money, lost income. And then when you go to send your kids back to school, they keep the girl out so that she can do more things to make more money. When the girl is out of school, they lean more on her to do cooking and cleaning and chores and babysitting. So she has less hours for education. So she just gets behind the higher rate of teen pregnancy or child marriage. So you end up with with girls that are, you know, swept up in those other things and don't end up going back to school. And that just because of the headspace that we're in, it just got me thinking, why is Africa uh, such a poor country? Which I will say, after some of my research, some of the argument is it's actually not a poor country. It's a resource-rich country, but it's based on a lot of ways that laws are set up and something about tax havens, things that were admittedly over my head, where I was like, okay, it seems like colonization, decolonization, and current global rules and structures continue to not support this country. And then I pondered, are all of the poorest countries people of color? When we think about third world countries, if we looked at the the third of the world that has the lowest income and money, would they all be people of color? Again, I am not an expert on this. I'm not saying that I've looked into all of these things, but I just got in this headspace where I just thought, you know, everything that Jeremy and I care about and we put our money towards. Uh, We've built a well in uh, Ethiopia with Charity Water, with our Dean Street Society students. We have a sponsor child in Africa. Our church builds schools in Africa and supports refugees in the Middle East. And I just thought, is race at the heart of most every human cause that breaks our hearts? And is this actually more global, more historical? Is this actually so ranging in scope that anything that we care about is somehow tied back into this? Even as I was reading up on Africa, um, it was saying that it's the most economically impacted by global warming. So even with the environment, if that is your deep passion in the world, can we start to see that through the lens of using your voting power to help work towards global equity, that by fighting for the environment, you also are fighting for more global parity when it comes to different races and ethnicities. Because is it true, and again, do your own research, not saying I'm the expert on this, is it true that people of color are more disadvantaged by global warming? And why is that true, et cetera? And is that an area for you to to pair these two things? Because when I think about the concept of what do we do, another huge response that I heard was just this sense of, I feel so overwhelmed. I, I feel helpless. I don't, I don't know what to do. And as I've been pondering on this, you know, I just had the idea that when it comes to voting, for example, we don't agree with everything that a politician stands for. By and large, I would assume we don't even know all of the things. We don't dive into all of the things, most of us. Some of you listening may be incredibly politically engaged and incredibly politically savvy. But I will say, as someone who historically has been very interested in politics, I nonetheless could go down the list and say that when I have voted for a candidate, I have read their entire website with all of their policy positions. I think most of us, we tend to go with our most passionate ones. This is what we call issue issue-based voters, that we tend to say, this is the issue I care most about, and I'm paying attention to what the candidates say on this specific topic. And it's made me curious, why are we most passionate about the ones we are most passionate about? If there's 10, 100 different issues that are happening in our city, our state, our region, our nation... Why out of those 10 or 100 things, why do we have the one thing or the three things that we care most about? Um, I'm not saying that that's wrong, but I think it's interesting for us to consider. Why is that my most passionate one? And am I able to argue why I am therefore deprioritizing another one? Because in order to have one or three issues we care most about, we also have to be able to articulate, I, I, I therefore by process of elimination, care less about these things? Why do I care less about these other things? And I guess ultimately, you have to come to the basic premise in order to buy into what I'm saying, that that this is the foundation of everything, that racial inequality means human beings not being treated equally. 
And I think we all do believe that humans should be treated equally. It's in our Declaration of Independence. We are horrified by slavery or we are horrified by the Holocaust. But are we compelled enough by it to look at how our votes are affected by it and to fold that into being more educated in our voting, which I will be honest, that takes a lot of energy to get educated. And we have elections coming up at the end of the month here in New York, and I've been saving some posts that I've been seeing. But I'm personally aware, when do I slow down to look at something and actually watch or listen or consume it in the moment? And when do I save it in one of my Instagram folders or text myself the article as a, oh, I should go back and read that later? And I'm not saying this is necessarily bad. I text myself articles all the time that I'm going to save for book research or something in a class that I'm teaching. But I was aware when I'm seeing these things, I'm like, oh, yeah, I got to get, I should probably get educated about what's happening in this election coming up. But I'm not immediately like jazzed to do that. We don't own property. We don't have kids that go to school. So local things feel like they affect me less. I can even envision my parents or my sister. Generally, I would be more politically engaged than my mother or my sister. But I can imagine that they actually are more engaged in local politics because they directly understand how it affects them. Where it it feels like it doesn't affect me here, and it probably doesn't because of the categories that I fall into. So am I compelled enough to care about my neighbor? And I'm just really sharing some of my own thoughts, guys, over the last few weeks here. Like, I think about how I did care about my neighbor enough to want to stay outside New York City. One of the big reasons that we stayed out during the pandemic was at the beginning, there was all those horrific stories coming from Italy about having to choose who lived and died because of a ventilator shortage. And it seemed so clear and compelling that that was going to happen in New York. And my number one reason was we are younger and healthier. I could not live with myself if we electively went back and then we one of us got sick and we took a ventilator from someone. Like that was my first number one thing. And thankfully it didn't end up coming to that here. But I continued to follow the news so closely and just just wept and was more affected, as I imagine all of you were, about your own home state. If you're from Alabama and you were reading what was happening with Alabama, it just affects you more than when you're reading something that's in Iowa. There is this sense of we, we feel attached to our own place. So I ask myself, what would shift it inside me to care more? about my neighbors, about the people that are affected by my vote or my lack of vote. And I'm aware that it takes focus to keep to keep it top of mind. We know as humans, we just revert to selfishness. Basically, I read an incredible book by Tim Keller about marriage before Jeremy and I got married. And basically everything it comes down to is that selfishness is the enemy of marriage. Like that's ultimately the the main thing that you are fighting against is you are working to be more selfless, to care more about the other person. It is universal that we all are selfish. So how do I, how do I work against my nature in that way to care more about other people? I think one of the things is, is keeping it top of mind, keeping it in my line of vision so that I don't get back in my own little world where everything can sort of easily revolve around me. And I think about what are other times that I've cared more about other issues. I am very passionate about rights for the gay community. And when I think about why that is, I think it's that I saw so much more of that in my musical theater career. I spent years on the road, months at a time, living with people day in, day out, nonstop. There were so many people that I loved in my life. It mattered so much to them. I was such a part of that community. And then I also really understood growing up in a Christian home, the biblical opinions on the other side. So I felt like I really was educated on both sides of of the issue and I cared about people on both sides. I know that the gay community is a minority. It feels like they need other people to speak up on them, uh, for them. And for some reason, that was just something I had gay friends in high school and in college since I was like 17. I believed that I just couldn't understand how God would create someone. I wanted nothing more than to be married and to be in love. And I thought, how could God create someone and then say, you don't get to be in love. You're going to want to love people. And that's wrong. Like, I just couldn't reconcile that. So I can see 
I can go back and say, why did I become so passionate about that? And I can articulate it for myself. And I can also see that it was because it felt more like something that was happening now. It felt like a present issue. And I realized while I also have had so much exposure to people of color simply because of where I've lived, that many more of the instances of racism or racial inequality have felt like random occurrences as I think back. Um, Coincidentally, I don't know why, we always used to joke about it, but my three best friends from high school, all separate friends, not like a group of friends, but like my best friend from church, my best friend from my school, my best friend from the regional theater program, they were all people of color, two black and uh, and one uh, Asian. And so I've had different stories that came up. Like I remember in college, my best friend and uh, roommate who was black getting pushback from the black sorority on campus and calling her a white black. And I was like, I didn't know that was a a thing. And she's like, yeah, there's sort of like white blacks who grew up in traditionally white neighborhoods. And the fact that there were you know, a, a smaller percentage of blacks that would join the traditional sororities and there was one black sorority. But that seemed like, oh, it was this thing that this conversation we had one time. It seemed like this one time that she got pushed back. It wasn't something that felt like it was so prevalent for all four years of college. I remember my other friend saying that his uh, he was a black man dating a white girl and that her parents uh, would be very unhappy if she was dating him. And so she didn't want to introduce her parents. But I only remember that as one time. I don't remember that as he continued to date white women, this came up again and again and again. So they felt more like a, a blip here and a blip there, uh, ex-boyfriend who... Uh, here in Brooklyn, who got would get pulled over when he was driving his moped and uh, his like Vespa, and they would ask him where, you know, who, where did you get this? Who does this belong to? And he'd always be like, it it belongs to me. And I knew that I'd heard that story, but it still felt like a more isolated thing. Well, he lives in this specific neighborhood in Brooklyn that is more low income, that has more crime. He is more. Um, in, in the minority there of having the kind of money for something like that. It wasn't until my friend Nicole Walters shared that she gets pulled over four or five times a year in her very nice affluent white neighborhood in Atlanta that I realized, oh, and I went home uh, since I was in California and asked my mom, I was like, how often have you gotten pulled over? She's like, never. And I was like, that's what I thought. And I realized like, oh, this this happens to Nicole every couple of months just because she's in a nice neighborhood and she's driving a nice car and because of the color of her skin, they assume that she doesn't live there. Same thing as as my ex, uh, one of my best friends here in the city, we've had multiple conversations. Um, she's she's black and uh, around her hair, that it is not good for her hair to keep pulling it back all the time to get it straightened, to have a weave in it. She would like to have her, she would like to get braids because that's better for your hair. It's better for your scalp. When she goes to the gym, she's not able to like deep clean her hair as as much because she has the weave and the braids would be better for that. And yet she's the only black woman in her department at work, she's been been promoted quickly, and she she just decided like I I don't want I don't want to stand out as different or causing any sort of question. It's like I just want to blend in as much as I can to allow myself to have more opportunity at this company. And I, of course, I'm I'm putting this in in her words, but we've had conversations about this. But again, it felt like, well, this is an isolated thing. You're in a conservative field. You're in a white male driven field. And it wasn't something that I felt like, oh, gosh, we talk about this all the time. So I've realized when these things have come up for me with my friends, it's always like, a, that's weird or that's a shame. But it felt like most of the things that I'm seeing these days that I'm aware of, specifically because I'm in the beauty industry, which sounds odd because that makes people think of like makeup and beauty bloggers. I mean, exploring what makes women feel beautiful, that I'm very aware of how many conversations there are around black women being able to wear their natural hair and uh, having skin tones and undergarments and makeup. Like I see those things as, okay, we still have ways to go. We still have things that we're exploring. But it really has not been sort of at the forefront for me of, oh my gosh, these are daily, weighty, heartbreaking, devastating, uh, you know, um, microaggressions, big aggressions, all of the things. And part of it for me also, there was a graphic recently that was, um, it said, if, if New York were 100 people, 
And it was showing these breakdowns of what the economic breakdown would be, the um, the people of color, the uh, people of disability. And it was just really compelling graphic. Jeremy and I sat and looked at it for a long time. And one thing that really stood out for me is that people of color was like 70%. And I want to say... Uh, I should have looked this up before. Jeremy said this the other day, and I don't know if it's correct. I think he said nationally, there's maybe 3% of the black community. Please don't quote me on this. And I don't know what it would be overall with people of color. But the general point is that it is, we are so much more diverse here in New York that I've realized in some of the things that I've seen come out on Instagram, how different my experience is because I have lived here. And I'll also point out in this, I'm not saying I was more evolved and better and therefore I moved to New York City and you stayed home in, you know, Wisconsin. Um, it simply was my was my path. God opened a door for a Broadway tour right after college and I moved here and I never looked back. And I didn't move here thinking, you know, I really want to move something to place that's ethnically diverse. I was born in Southern California. I didn't say, you know what, I really like to not be born in the South. I'd like to be born someplace more diverse. I just grew up there where I had, you know, people to become friends with without thinking about it. And I've heard people share on Instagram multiple uh, people come forward saying like, I acknowledge now as an entrepreneur that my team is all white, that I've always only hired white people, that black people haven't held prominent roles in our, our community. And guys, I'll just be honest, every time someone gets called out for something, even if it's one of those videos where a stranger is being filmed, I just always slow down and I'm like, is there any chance I could have done that? Is there any chance that I could be called out for that? And I'm not sure why. I think just maybe it's like the Enneagram 4 in me. I just really prize authenticity. Um, I just really slow down to make sure that I'm not being like, I would never. And then be like, okay, well, actually, if if push comes to shove. So I really keep slowing down and being like, would I have done what that woman had done in in Central Park? Like, no, I absolutely would not have. Okay. And when I saw this coming out about all white teams, I was like, oh, interesting. And I was like, oh, we've had we, okay, we've had two black team members and like one of them was the highest role in the company. And then it was like a week later, I was like, oh, wait, we had a third black team member. Actually, when she was here, she was the highest member of the company. And then I was like, oh, wait, I'm forgetting. We had a fourth black team member. She was actually the first employee that I that I ever hired. And I realized I just never thought about it, but that New York City is not the norm. And what I think I'm saying is that even with this, even with being like, I realize I had more privilege, let's say, than you perhaps listening because of where I grew up that I had more diversity or because of where I've lived as an adult that I had more diversity. That even with that, I need to be reminded and actively choose to stay reminded that this is urgent and this is now. Because even with the access that I've had, and again, let us be clear. I'm not saying that I've been an activist. I'm not saying that I've been on the front lines. I'm not saying, you know, but I'm just, I'm acknowledging as I hear and see other people's stories, oh, I have had more um, access and opportunity than others have. And yet, I don't feel compelled enough when it comes to my local voting to have previously thought well, maybe I do need to get educated about this election because maybe there are going to be things that are passed here locally in neighborhood in in my neighborhood or in New York City or New York State or in the the country. What are the issues that I care about when I go to vote for for president? And am I really looking at what issues most affect people of color? And it might be, it might be the same issues, but how can I also be passionate about it? even more so because it affects others? Or might I shift a little bit and say, actually, that doesn't, that impacts a small, a smaller group or that impacts me and I already have more rights. So is there something that I should pay attention to even more? And I'm just wondering if whatever issues you're passionate about, can you add on to that? And what does that mean for people of color? So not just in our voting, but also in our donations or our volunteering or what your church is focusing on raising money or awareness for. Like I consider if the homeless is your passion and you live in Seattle and that is a predominantly white neighborhood, I am just guessing, and more affluent. And you are really focused on your local homeless population. And that is amazing. Emma, I, I am so on board that that is what your heart is for. And I just think that is beautiful. And 
the homeless causes in your neighborhood, do they have more money behind them because your whole neighborhood is more affluent and people have more disposable income to put towards things like donations? And what if you simultaneously chose a lower income, higher person of color population where you're like, there is just less money going into their homeless programs? And and yes, my heart is in Seattle, so that's why I'm here. But is there some place that my husband is from or my best friend is from or my favorite influencer is from? Is there some other connection that I can feel pulled to saying this is why I really care about the homeless population in New Orleans as well? And I decide to start taking my donations. And if I'm donating $100 a month, I start doing $50 a month to each of those places. Can you care about your issue and the issue of people of color or the issue of the black community. You know, I just think there's a lot of focus right now about not getting past this, not moving on. And I really empathize with that, with with not saying we don't want this to just be a blip and then everything stays the way that it is. And hopefully enough of us have woken up to say, I don't want, I do feel that I would be complicit now if I just kind of move on and I'm like, oh, thank goodness, we're back to the way things were. Yet I also will be honest that for most people, Instagram is not for activism, but escapism. And I've heard from people saying, I feel so guilty. I feel like a horrible person that I want to go back to Instagram being a place where I come to escape the anxieties of my day, not to feel all the more anxious. And that when I want to read the news, I read the news. And when I want to see pretty pictures and destinations and light, lovely things, that's what I go to Instagram for. And I really honor both of those perspectives. And so one of my ideas that I'm just going to propose is the 80-20 principle. When it comes to Instagram, podcasts, documentaries, books, what if you you came at it with the 80-20 approach of saying, it's not that 100% of my Instagram feed is going to be all activists and all black vo- voices, but what if 20% of it was? What if it was 100, what if it was 0% before? And what if I increased it to 20%? What if the reality is I want to go back to watching Gossip Girl? I don't want to feel guilty that I'm doing nothing but watching these documentaries. But when I look at what I consume, what if 20% of it was that? What if 20% of the time I listen to a podcast, you know, one out of every five episodes in my week, I'm like, okay, Monday through Thursday, I have these life coaching and business and personal development and faith-based and all that. But one day a week, I'm I'm going to listen to a podcast that is, you know, more, more educating me in this area. I've talked about during coronavirus that one of the, one of my best tips for how we planned for the future, how we made decisions, what we focused on, I specifically talked about this a lot with my Ellie and Excellence Mastermind girls, was focusing on three months and three years. I'm sorry, three weeks and three years. What could we do in the next three weeks? Short term, what did we have control over? What choices do we want to make? And three years from now, where do we want to be? Am I going to look back in 18 months and be like, oh my gosh, I got myself so off track during during quarantine. I really regret that. Are we making sure we're still headed in the same general direction, but are we willing to be palms up about the three months, the 18 months, all the stuff in the middle? And can we just be like, I, I don't know what I'm doing in the fall, but I can focus on the next three weeks. What am I going to do here? Well, I heard a blogger named Tiffany Moon on Instagram. She's the Northern Belle of the South. And I heard her on a podcast talk about uh, six weeks, six months, and six years. And it so resonated with me with what I had been saying for how we sort of see where we are headed. We talk about this in the Elegant Excellence Journal. But I thought it was really beautiful to think about in terms of honoring some new area of our lives and saying, what we're doing right now only really matters if it's still showing up in all three of those seasons, in six weeks, in six months, in six years. And I think back to, I went to a gun safety march. I don't know how to, I don't even know like the right words for it. But um, I realize I, I am passionate about the fact that we have too many guns in this country. And the it's just, feels so nonsensical to me how we continue to have such gun violence. I care about that issue, but it doesn't show up anywhere else in my life. 
which is fine. It's fine that I that I went to a march and that I care about it. I just can't say I quote care deeply about it or I have done enough. I certainly can't be, you know, I, I I've done something, which is great, and I know what side I'm on. That's a start. But I acknowledge that it would be um uh, inauthentic of me to say, oh, I really, I really do a lot. I really focus a lot on that. And it's okay. We can't focus a lot on all the things. But I think when it comes to this issue of race relations, I think we really have to ask ourselves, if it doesn't break your heart enough to want to keep up that action, why? You know, d- does, why does it not impact you enough, feel important enough. And I think for us, almost anything, when we hear stories about it, it does. If my niece had been at one of the schools where there was a school shooting, it would likely be a much larger part of my life. And I think, again, that that belief in this case, if we really say it's the foundation of everything, we look at the history of the world. I start to, you know, through reading this um how to be an anti-racist book. He talks about how slavery actually began with Portugal in the 14th century. I mean, that is so that is so far before America even existed. And I, I don't mean that to absolve America of like, see, we didn't start it. I just mean like, oh my gosh, we're talking centuries. We're talking so many people involved. How did we even get here? How did that even begin? I don't know enough about co- colonization. When you go back and read the Bible, if you're someone who's ever read the Bible, I mean, there is so much hating of other religions and ethnicities. Like, do you ever read the Bible and you're just gobsmacked at all of the death and destruction and desolation? Like, it sounds horrible to have lived in Bible times. <laughs> I get that, like, you know, maybe Jesus was there and maybe there was like some cool things that that people got to experience. But oh my gosh, it just is like, this This sounds horrific. And then you look at today and you're like, oh my gosh, we're still doing it. Like, it wasn't that was then and and this is now. Like, this is still happening. But I also balance that with activism isn't my business. Um, I got someone messaging me and saying, you know, I'm I'm upset that you are posting what you were doing in California. Read this whole blog post that I wrote about why white influencers should not be going back to posting about their lives. And I said to her, I really respect your opinion and um, and the work that you've put into it. But this isn't activism isn't my business. The, the way that I pay my rent, the way that I support my team, what I feel God has called me to in the world, if all I ever talk about now is race relations and I don't talk about entrepreneurship and beauty and travel and anxiety and, and all of the things, then it, th- I, I have a completely different business. Nothing that I'm selling is aligned to that. So it's not a realistic ask that we only focus on this. We all need to focus on being able to pay our rent. We don't deny our calling. But what would it look like if we found that 80-20? You know, and it, and if it doesn't if it doesn't really matter enough to compel us at all, do we need to sort of say I I am concerned that it doesn't compel me more and I need to better understand this story that this is just all of humanity so it becomes something that everyone cares about. Of course, it's a part in some way. So I think the question is, how will I be different in six weeks, six months, six years? I think that's the question for us is honestly, many people have DM me that they're ready for Instagram to go back to that that place of escapism, like I said, where it was uh, it was a place to get some peace from your anxiety, not the most anxiety producing place. And I know Instagram just happens to be one example of it, but it is a, you know, a, a microcosm of other things. And I think that those feelings are valid and feeling guilty for having those feelings doesn't help. It doesn't make up for anything. Is it a sign of privilege that we don't have to see that every day in our everyday life? Absolutely. So is not being a refugee. And yet I don't follow only those accounts. And if I followed only the accounts about the plight of refugees, it it wouldn't necessarily make me a better wife, daughter, friend, coach, boss, mentor, all the other things that I have been called to. Would it make me a better human? 
if I was following 20% of those accounts, if those were the the mar- marginalized, the underprivileged, the people of color that I felt the most called to. So I think we say, what do we do? How can I keep 80-20? What can I see having done or doing in six weeks, six months, six years? You know, in six weeks, am I still going to be reading and watching? When I finish this book, will I pick up another book? And will I make sure that I actually finish the book? I don't know about you, but for me, for some reason, nonfiction audiobooks not just related to race, related to anything, I tend to not finish. I tend to get two-thirds of the way through and then I quit. So I've really been challenging myself with this how to be an anti-racist. You're going to finish this book and then the next one you read, you're going to make a point to finish it. Whereas sometimes the other ones I'm like, okay, you you fell off after a while. Is, is it really that big of a deal? In this way, I'm like, no, this is a, a bigger deal. Instead of binge watching all the documentaries right now so we can say we watch them, Will I still continue to be bringing them up once there are not these memes going around reminding me how many different documentaries there are? In six months, will I still be donating? Did I do that once when the moment happened? Or did I actually seek out organizations that I wanted to invest in for the long term? And I put myself on a monthly plan or a quarterly plan to say, I don't want this to just be a one-time thing. I actually do want to be able to say years from now, Yes, I have consistently supported this issue. In six years, do I want to be far more educated and feel like I have voted intentionally in election after election on, on the right side of certain issues, that I've I've really donated substantially to certain organizations that I can be really proud of? Oh, I've been donating to them for, for five years. We've donated X amount of, of money to really feel like we really poured into that specific local organization, um, feel more equipped to raise a child in this really you know, next level way of being what it means to be an anti-racist. So back to the very first advice that I received on reading books and um, that sort of being people's first like, oh, you know, you, you should read some books. And I'd be like, I, I don't understand. How is this going to help anything? I I got this picture of if we have a range from zero to 10, and zero is your anti-racist, lived experience, person of color, and 10 is just heartbreakingly racist, some of the worst news stories that we see. If there's a heat map of where we're at as a culture, and you can kind of see from zero to 10, where do most people sit? What I came to realize is I think this idea of reading a book or anything, you know, fill in the blank along those lines, it's about getting one degree better. And I am not saying that one degree is enough. You know, for some of us, it's been a a 50% leap to, oh my gosh, I just, I realized I actually did have a lot of racist beliefs and I, man, have I been convicted. For some, some, it's a 25% wake up call to, I am just grieved that I didn't realize how much I didn't know. For some, it's a 10% conviction. I I felt I was educated on this, but gosh, I've realized that there's even more to learn. So I'm not saying that 1% is enough, but I teach about 1% often. You've heard me say it before. I believe in lifelong learning and growing and that there are so many things that we want that we want there to be overnight success. And whether it's anxiety or entrepreneurship or friendship, you hear me teach about this idea of getting 1% better. I, 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 I healed my anxiety by getting 1% and 1% and 1% and 1% better over years and years. And I know that I still have a lifetime to go. And I, I get 1% better in my business all the time after nine years. And I know I have so much more to go. So I realized that first post to me about George Floyd was really more so about racism, about this horrible thing that we were seeing. But I have way more than 1% knowledge to grow in about racial inequality, about being anti-racist. And if we are all moving in that direction, then we pull the heat map closer and closer away from 10 and to zero. And that to me is what it means to read a book, to follow someone on Instagram, listen to a podcast, watch a documentary, sign a petition, think more deeply about how we vote, where we donate, who we support. 
we won't get to all of those things overnight, but each week or month, not just in this moment, but truly long term, what are we doing to get at least one degree better and and part of the culture, the, the tide that is moving in that direction? We've cared about that one degree better in all these other areas of our lives here in the podcast. And my argument that hopefully I've made somewhat coherently today, I'll be honest, I really don't know um, that the perfect ways to say these things and there is a lot of sense of being afraid of saying it wrong or misunderstanding. And so I just told myself, you know what, I'm going to do my best and I'm going to believe that it's going to speak to some people and other people are going to be like, I didn't really get it or didn't really resonate with me. But we have cared in all these other ways, all these other areas of our lives in, in getting one degree better throughout the last year or so of this podcast together. And my argument is that racial parity is human parity. And that should matter to every one of us. So now that we're even more awake to it, we make it one of the things that we're getting better at, even if it doesn't affect us directly, because it affects humanity. And that's part of being a good human is the golden rule, do unto others as you would do to yourself and love your neighbor and all the sweet little things we've believing been believing since we were in kindergarten. And now we realize that we can do them. Maybe with a documentary, even though it feels small, it's one degree in the right direction. A vote, that's powerful. A donation, that's powerful. Together, all of this really truly does become powerful. And to me, that makes me feel less hopeless and more hopeful. It makes me feel more encouraged, more empowered, more inspired to keep leaning in. And those are just two things, three things rather, that are blessing me. Am I getting one degree better? What, what, what would 80-20 look and feel like in my life? It, when this is no longer the prime focus of everything on the news and Instagram, but to say, I, I'm not going back to zero. I'm not going back to 5% wherever you were. And how is this still prevalent in my life six weeks, six months, and six years from now? Again, thanks to Tiffany Moon, the Northern Belle of the South, I believe she's called, um, on Instagram for um, for that that's so aligned with my you know, three month, three week, three year vision through coronavirus and the Elegant Excellence Journal. When I look at those three things and does it help me to say, okay, I have some ideas of what I could be doing. And when I say racial parity is human parity and that I, I can't be a good human and say I don't care about that. So anything that I do care about that are my issues based things, that are my, my, you know, pet causes, my donation things, can I look at how does this affect people of color? How does this affect the black community? And can I lean into those things I already care about and just care about even more people, how even more people are affected in them and by them? So many of you, well, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Truly, please share below my latest Instagram post whenever it is that you hear this so that we all can hear and read what you've shared. Um, when you DM me, it is only me. So if it is very private and you just would not feel comfortable sharing publicly, please DM me. But um, as much as possible, I would love to have you share your comments. I really am curious to hear more of your experiences because what you've shared with me privately in DMs is really beautiful. And I think that there is so much, so many shared experiences that to hear more of you sharing from all different uh, ethnicities that have been writing me, it would be really beautiful for you to hear. So many of you have DM'd me that you feel pressured to share, but shamed if you share the wrong thing. And I see that. I've observed a lot of that watching uh, these past few weeks on other profiles. And I can only tr speak for myself that I trust your heart. I hear a lot of vulnerable things from you, not just on this issue, but over the years. And earnestly, no one I have ever heard from, aside from a crazy handful, just we would all agree they're wackadoos, are 100% or everyone I've heard from is 100% well-meaning. I can earnestly say no one that I've heard from is ever not well-meaning, is mean-spirited, is unkind. I just think that we are sometimes hurting and raw and we have past pain that we aren't sharing in that comment that would illuminate a lot. We have uh, triggers and trauma that we would really have a lot more compassion for one another if we had enough of a relationship to understand. Or we've had this conversation a lot lately. We've repeated ourselves. And so we're as 
exasperated as if you told a kid something 10 times and you're like, oh my gosh, do I have to say this again? But actually this kid just walked in the room and they weren't there before. So it's like, we're tired of repeating ourselves, but actually, you know, this, this kid is new or we don't fully express our thought because we've said it so many times. Sometimes I'll say something to Jeremy and he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. But in my head, I've talked about it so much or I was talking about it with a friend earlier. I was taking notes for a podcast. And so I bring him into to points like three and four out of 10. And he's like, I don't even know what we're talking about. So I just want to say to you, whether you've been annoyed with people or feel people have been annoyed with you or harder words like judged or judgment or anger, I see you both. I believe your hearts are both in the right place, whichever side you have felt on. I don't mean whichever side, uh, you know, in the, the racial conversation, but I think that whatever your ethnicity is, you can feel at, at times that you have been misunderstood or you have had someone, you know, criticize you for something you have done or you haven't done. But I believe if you both were on my balcony for cocktails, I think we could have a beautiful conversation that would leave both people feeling more hopeful and heard than hurt and hot. So while I cannot control the internet, (laughs) that is my heart to encourage us in. And I continue to be a truly safe space to hear your thoughts, uh, not your criticism that takes a tone and that brings sass and that is just complaining, but your real pain and heart and hope and processing if you want to share it. And of course, this conversation barely scratches the surface. It is only uh, some some slightly attempts to be well-organized opinions and insights from the past few weeks after hours and days of of deep conversation and deep listening. But I hope that it leaves us feeling both permission to live our lives and convicted to live them more with others in mind, inspired to stay part of the change and empowered as to how to do that practically and sustainably in ways that support our lives and our hearts and others' lives and their hearts. Oh, wait. One more thing. Don't miss this. Before you go, love. P.S. Something I'm loving lately is being home. I feel like there's a, I feel like there should be a Les Mis song in there. Dream to dream. One day more. Isn't there something about home? Anyways, it's not coming to me, friend, but it is really nice to be home. So the lowdown on being back in New York, our building is, according to our doorman, it's only like 50% occupancy, meaning like half our neighbors have not been here like us. They had left the city and they have still yet to return. Um, the neighborhood is way less crowded than we expected. I think Jeremy and I have pondered it. We think there's four reasons for that. Number one, at, as with our building, we think there's still a lot of New Yorkers that are away. I mean, if 50% of the people in our building probably is true of the other uh, buildings around us. Obviously, it's not true about New Yorkers in general, but because we live in a more affluent neighborhood, there are likely to be people here who are less essential workers, who can work more remotely, or um, who are who had the means to go to be with family or who maybe had a second house somewhere, whatever. Um, We also have a lot of friends that are, it's not because they're affluent. They just left when this first broke out to go be with family. And now they're just like, we don't know why there's a a point at returning anytime soon. We have more space here and all that. Number two, there's, I I was going to say there's no subway. It's not that there's no subway, but, but people wisely don't want to take the subway. So if you're not getting on the subway, which is the main mode of transportation here in New York, then you aren't moving about as much. So even though we have a neighborhood where we live on the water and there's great streets and all of that, Less people are coming here like that that previously would have been like that's a destination to go to. And in our specific neighborhood, because we're on the water, like if you pictured our building, you know, your house and you've got a 360 degree circumference around you of of neighbors. Well, because we're on the water, we only have half of that circumference. So the actual people that live here are less. Number three, with less open, where are you going? Like you're not going out to a restaurant. You're not walking around shops. So there's just kind of less reason to leave your house. And maybe you go for a walk, maybe you go to pick up takeout, but you're just less likely to be out of your house for hours on a a weekend or an evening as you would. And number four, which Jeremy pointed out, which I think is huge, is there's no tourists. New York is such a tourist destination. And I don't think anybody's coming here to be 
tourists. So it's one of the reasons why we thought our flight was so empty on back to New York is we were flying from Vegas because that's where Jeremy's parents are. And um, Jeremy hypothesized that because Vegas is open, maybe more people are going to Vegas. So they have flights into Vegas. But very few people would be coming back to New York. You wouldn't probably just be coming to visit. There's so so little that's open, especially right now. Things still aren't open. So I had said for a while, we need to come back and see. Like I didn't know what it was going to be like to be back in New York. And I was aware that I was assuming more negative things, that I was leaning towards. It's going to be crowded. It's going to be really intense. We've been living with so much space. It's going to feel a little bit arresting. We're going to feel a little bit trapped. We have less outdoor space, like all of those things. And I'm I'm just aware how often my thoughts may be – well, I have a thought about everything, and I don't know until I experience it whether or not it's true. And am I making it better or worse than I think it is? So, you know, we went and visited Charleston back in the fall to explore. I just had this idea in my head that maybe we could move to Charleston someday, but I'd never really been there. So I said to Jeremy, we just need to take a trip down there because I don't want to spend three years daydreaming about Charleston – only to get there and be like, nope, this doesn't feel right. So we went after like maybe nine months of my daydream about it. And I was like, no, I don't think this is this is it. And I had that awareness to know, yeah, sometimes we make things better. And then sometimes we make them worse. I think coming home, I had more weighty ideas around it than has actually proven to be true. And I think that that's just such a perfect lesson of today's episode that We need to experience things in order to discover the truth. We need to take action, not just wonder and ponder from afar, but really try and see and know and to take action and immerse ourselves in something is how we will know that our thoughts are more based in reality than in hope or fear. So I have a lot more of life to see and know, and I am grateful that you are on the journey to grow along with me. And speaking of growing, if you are looking to grow your business as a current or aspiring entrepreneur, please swipe up, pop your name and email in the link below so that you can be one of the first to hear about this program and you do not miss it during the short window that it's available. And if you think that this podcast would help someone else grow in their life, I would be so incredibly grateful if you would swipe up and leave a review. Literally, you can just tap those five stars. You don't even have to write anything and it would mean the world to me. And if you have an extra 30 seconds to type and share something. Truly, it means so much in bringing other beautiful people like you into this community. I will see you back here next Wednesday with Grace and Gumption. Till next Wednesday. 